0: Another spring day begins, another day in paradise, or perhaps purgatory, even uh, in the inferno, around us these spring days, beautiful Bright skies. Calm. Still, times of blossoming. But it's up to us whether it's paradise or or purgatory. What the mind makes of it is entirely up up to us. Whether we reflect upon the the beauty of the blossoms or the, the fact they give us hay fever is up to us. To begin to see, to reflect upon how we create the world. We take hold of moods, perceptions, memories, feelings, the body. We construct our world. Some of it consciously, some of it unconsciously. So we chant these verses, recite these recollections, reflections, as a way of helping us to reframe, restructure our perceptions. Not out of wanting to make ourselves blindly believe in anything, blindly worship something, but seeing the the obstructiveness, the painfulness of the limits that we create upon our own heart, the weights that we carry around, wrapped around our own heart. And using these reflections, recollections, aspirations, simply to unburden the heart to allow the the heart to fly free for our own potential to be fulfilled we make the shrine uh, focus of our attention, the highest point in the room, having the Buddha, the Buddha image at the center, and it symbolizes a human being, still Also, you'll notice that Buddha images always have an androgynous quality. They're deliberately neither masculine nor feminine. They represent the, the human condition in its state of perfect balance the male and the female. The calm, the alert, the body neither fat nor thin. So, representing an an archetype, (laughs) a pattern for the quality of balance itself, representing that which is awake. For many centuries, no Buddha images were used at all. They would just use a a Dharma wheel, or a pair of footprints, an empty chair. Out of respect for not wanting to even characterize awakenedness as limited by the human form. In later years, when the human form became used then, was stylized in this way to evoke these qualities of both uh, <laughs> alertness, also that of uh, earthiness. So the Buddha image represents that which is awake. So this is a mirror, a mirror for us. When we bow to the Buddha, we're bowing to that in us which is awake, that which is wise, that which knows this moment. So in the shrine there are always candles, flowers and incense. Buddha is always placed at the center, but the other elements symbolize uh, similar attributes. The candles represent wisdom, Panya, bringing light into the darkness, dispelling the darkness. of flowers represent virtue, that which is naturally beautiful, sila, that which is a, a delight in the world, conduct which is harmonious, sensitive, kind. The incense represents samadhi, the one point of fire, the one-pointedness of mind, producing the fragrance which fills the air. The mind is focused, one-pointed. and This brings the heart a, a quality of, of contentment, of delight. So we gather these objects together, place them at the center of our attention, Pay our respects to them, to wisdom, to virtue, to mental training. These are the, the pathway, the threefold training, whereby we can reshape our lives. Taking the raw matter of our conditioning, our perceptions, our bodies, our habits, our potentials, taking these raw materials, working with them, needing them, nurturing them, cultivating them, to their fulfillment. Uh, as we develop the practice of insight, we're consciously using these tools on the basis of virtue to provide a, an environment of safety, of beauty, Trust and <clears throat> concentration, bringing the mind to focus on the present moment where we are, where life actually happens, and using wisdom. to examine, to listen, to hold in the present moment within our hearts to look at the content the fabric of experience itself to better understand it as we develop the practice of insight first of all some things can be more easy to to see, to understand to know as impermanent not self and we let go of them easily it's no problem other elements seem to be absolutely who and what we are we don't even notice them as states of mind, because they're so familiar, so repetitive. This is why using the reflective thought can be extremely helpful, is to pick up those habits of mind patterns of thinking, which are so familiar, so ordinary to us, when we pick it up, we outline it, we designate it, we have a name for it. And somehow when we have a name for it, our heart knows this is an object. This is an event happening in the mind, it's not self. Even pervasive moods like depression, anxiety, half-formed doubts, Just to be able to rouse the reflection. This is the feeling of depression, this is a a painful mental state, this is what it feels like. Letting go of the story, the causes for it, our whole kind of discussions about it, just coming to the raw experience itself, this is depression. As we we pick up that state of mind, even if it doesn't disperse, in that very bringing of awareness to it, the identification with that state loosens. Imperceptibly, gently, it loosens becomes thinner, less dense. (coughs) Also in using reflective thought, as we identify what states of mind are there, naming them, clarifying them. Not only does that in itself help us give the heart power over that state of mind, When we know it just as a state of mind, also we awaken that intuition that it has to be changing. It cannot stay forever. This is an arisen dependent state. Like everything else, it comes, it goes, it changes. So many of our problems depend upon us continually recreating them, writing stories about them, perpetuating them with a thinking mind. When we come to the raw experience in the moment, not wanting things to be the way they are, wanting things to be different. we come right to that feeling. Wanting to hang on to the pleasant, resenting the painful. Feeling that, knowing that directly, within the mind and then also, particularly with emotional states, feeling them in the body. Oftentimes it's such a tangle of emotions and thoughts that we're so used to. We can't get any kind of objectivity on a mental level. The stories start up and run so quickly. They're too familiar for us to to let them go effectively. Getting excited about this or angry about that. A feeling of grief or resentment. Whatever it might be. The stories are so old, so deeply embedded. So instead of entering the verbal world at all with them, just coming into the body, feeling where emotional states rest within the body. If there are particular issues in your life or particular states which are dominating, difficult. (coughs) You can even go to them deliberately, when the mind is calm and focused. Just deliberately bring up that memory of that person, that event. Focus on that aspect, your illness, your big problem, your big issue. raise the thought, and then bring your attention right into the body. Where do you feel that? That fear, that passion? Mind goes into doubt. Where do you feel it? How does it feel? When there's anger, what is it like? Where is it? Now, whereas the stories are complicated and involved and have a whole cast of characters that we get entangled in, the body is a very simple measure for all experience. It's very straightforward. It's coming to that—that feeling, if it's grief, anger, fear, whatever it might be. Find where it is in the body, and just let the attention rest with the very feeling. Don't even let the words and stories arise around it. Knowing this is the weight of depression. This is the the heat of anger. (laughs) And in that knowing of that feeling, and be with it, know it, and we watch it change. It can only sustain itself for so long it comes, it goes. And we can work with this in, in distinct ways. To use the focus of the mind, that the mind be still, steady, and consciously Arouse a particular feeling. Listen to the the sound of silence. Go to the breath. Then deliberately drop that emotional state into the into the cauldron. Watch it take shape out of nothingness. As emptiness, and then this whole phantasmagoria takes place. Holding it, knowing it within the body, feeling it, letting it go, and coming back to silence, emptiness once again. So we begin to get familiar with. Emotional states, positive, negative, whatever. We begin to witness how they work, how they function, how we get entangled. As soon as we get into the story, we're lost. We're off and wandering. If we just stay with the, the raw experience itself, it's very simple wave of, of lust is just, is just that. Excitement about the future is just that. The grief of something precious that we lost is just that. Begin to really get to know this process waves of feeling, states of mind swelling from the ocean, rising up, moving, dissolving, and begin to recognize that they're all just waves on the ocean of mind. They have no intrinsic value, meaning, substance of their own. They just mind stuff, taking shape, swelling, moving, dissolving. by allowing them into consciousness, we are knowing them, this is the way we work out our karma, allowing the karma of our birth, our existence, to to work itself out, to wear itself out. We're witnessing the whole complex of the mind-body, all its facets. Align them into consciousness, knowing them, letting them go. (coughs) I'm beginning to know more and more clearly the context for the whole process. There's the mind objects and the knowing the mind which knows them. So we make our refuge in that quality of knowing. Knowing the way things are. Resting in that. Using these tools to help us incline towards that innate peacefulness, limitlessness, that beauty which is our own nature, which is always here if we just let ourselves recognize it, let ourselves return to that. minds to reflect on the, the Dhamma, the teachings of the Buddha, the nature of the way things are. Radically redrawing the way we conceive what we are, what life is. Changing the model from me moving around in the world, me in here, the world outside, me in my projects, my issues, my problems, to the one who knows seeing the way things are, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, the Buddha mind, that in every one of us which is awake, holy, (coughs) which sees the Dhamma, which sees the way things actually are, Changing the paradigm match the reality. Right now, there's awareness of feeling. Sensations of the body, sound, we hear the birds singing at the beginning of the day, smell, taste, touch, sight. Of the mind. Different thoughts, attitudes arise, take shape, dissolve. It's like the chirping of the birds, the modulation of feelings in our legs, (coughs) in our face, our shoulders, the feeling of the tongue in the mouth, our fingers. Right now, there's awareness of the five khandhas changing, form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness. Buddha mind, seeing the way things are. There are the five kandas changing. And there's the Dhamma. Oh what is that? What is Dhamma? What is that reality? We recite these qualities every day. Sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, opanaiko, pachatang, veditabbo apparent here and now. This means this is the the ever-present reality. Always here, always now. Which means it's the very fabric of our, our consciousness, our life, the center of our world, the fabric of our world. It doesn't mean that it's not, because it's here and now, it doesn't mean that it's not somewhere else. But when we turn to it, it's always here at this time, in this place. The very quality of knowing is an attribute of the Dhamma itself. The nature of the mind is Dhamma. Knowing is its primary activity. The Buddha arises from the Dhamma. So There's always, necessarily, here, at the center of experience, akaliko, timeless, not bound by time, a Dhamma doesn't begin or end, it's not involved in linear time, outside of linear time. Of it as being now or here, these are not, these are just concepts. We don't even have to hold these together. We don't have to create that, we don't have to support that. (coughs) We don't have to have the concept to hold it in place. All there ever is is nowness. Thisness, isness. So even to say, here, now, because that creates a, a resonance of some other place, some other time, as somehow having an equal existence, is a false impression. Even though we use the words here and now, timeless, we shouldn't even attach to the concepts of here, of now. Letting go of the concepts and just realizing that truth, that quality. Ehi Pasiko. Ehi means come. It's an invitation. Ehi. Ehi Bhikkhu. Come biku, Ehi Pasiko. Come and see. The truth is attractive to us, it's inviting, delicious. Beautiful. The heart longs for the truth, wants to know the truth. And when it meets the truth, it recognizes it. Like, like one patch of water flowing into another. They merge, seamlessly. They flow into each other. The heart is longs for the Dhamma, longs for that that quality of truth because that is its own nature. When we hear the truth, we have insight into into the truth, the reality of things, our heart feels delight and joy. Aha. By recognizing a a familiar sign at the end of a journey, the outline of the city on the horizon the shore that we're sailing towards. Aha! There it is. That's home. The heart knows it, it recognizes it. That familiar turning, that tree on the corner. The shape of the skyline. It invites us, it calls us. So too, when we when we have a taste of the Dhamma, When we taste the truth, the heart leaps. Aha, there it is. Home. Openaiko is encouraging investigation. leading inward. It invites us, we look into it. Opanaiko, it draws us on. It urges us, rouses us to move forward. Like a magnet, drawing there, iron filings, Sometimes it's translated as leading inward, sometimes leading onward. Has the same meaning, essentially. Onward down the path to realisation of nibbana, of the truth. Pachatang Veditta Bhovinyuhi, to be seen by each wise person for themselves. No one can hand the Dhamma to us. No one can give us a realization of truth. You can hear the words, you can read the books. But the actual realization of truth has to be through an opening of our own heart. We have to draw the curtains. Pull them apart. We have to look. We have to see ourselves. No one else can do that for us. We have to teach ourselves, train ourselves. Regardless of how many Dharma talks we hear, how many books we read, how close we draw to a teacher. The Buddha said you could hang on to the edge of his robe and follow him around for twenty years, but if the heart was still clouded with greed, hatred, delusion, it would be as if you were miles, hundreds of miles, away from him. Yet one who is living in a remote place, who lets go of grief, hatred, and delusion, is, it, is as if they are sitting face to face with the Tathagata. One who sees the Buddha sees the Dhamma. One who sees the Dhamma sees the Buddha. These qualities of Dhamma don't give us much to hang on to. Here, now, timeless, encouraging investigation. It's not much to to hang your hat on, because uh, we're so used to the world of things forms, that which is beyond form, that which transcends form. The conceptual mind falls down in the face of it. It has no language for it, no structure, no means of expression. We can say Nibbana has no color. Nibbana is formless, peaceful, beautiful, we can't say much more because words have to be insufficient to match the reality. So the Buddha taught by a process of elimination, letting go of what we're not, we unfold, we reveal what is. So we prize open our grip on the body, on feelings, perceptions, states of mind, reflecting on their transiency. Whether re- the reflections on anicca is pointing to our our longing for continuity, for stability. Teachings on Anatta points to our longing for identity, individuality. The teachings on Dukkha pointing to our, our longing for, for happiness because the heart intuits certainty is possible, perfect peace and happiness is possible, perfect security is possible, but because of the conditioning of our birth we just look for it in the wrong place. So the teachings simply point out where we've been looking all our lifetime, in the body, in feelings, perceptions, other people, jobs, relationships, possessions, achievements. But it's only in the relinquishment of that that we can find out what we really are we have been all along Letting go of the subject-object relationship as a term the Buddha used, Atamayata, which means not made of that. And this is uh, the most refined of concepts. Letting go of that, that whole sense of this and that, here and there, subject-object. not made of that, the truth is not made of that, There's only this. Letting go of any sense of abiding, any sense of location, any center of being. So even if we have some insight in me feeling Oh, I realize, I'm realizing the truth, I'm seeing the truth, even that loosens from the the knowing mind realizing the truth, the Buddha seeing the Dhamma, to just the Dhamma (laughs) recognizing its own nature. That's all. If the ego grabs it and says, oh, I am the ultimate reality, look at me, you can be sure that that's the wrong grasping of insight. But in its essence, this is what it brings us to. Everything we are is part of nature, an attribute of Dhamma. The body is part of nature, feelings, thoughts, personality our defilements, our blessings every good and bad aspect of us is all part of nature so the consummation of a human life is where there's a that nature recognizing its own self Recognizing what it is, seeing it clearly, knowing it. Where does this leave us? We let go of everything, where does this leave us? The thinking mind kind of struggles and grasps and splutters. But the, uh, the essence of the, of the practice is leading the heart to this place of no abiding. Ajahn Shah used to ask people if you can't go forwards, you can't go back, you can't stand still, where do you go? Mind wrestles for an answer. Where we can go is to non-abiding, letting go of self, of time, <coughs> letting <coughs> letting go of place, and to the. To the ego, this seems like dissolution, death, the end, disaster. But to the heart, it's liberation, It's the most delicious thing of all. But to the ego, this is the worst of threats. It looks like non-being the Buddha was really categorical. He said, I do not teach the annihilation of an existent being. What I teach is suffering and the origin of suffering and the cessation of suffering. That's what I teach. So it's not like there we are an independent individual self that then is getting dissolved. That independence, that separate time-bound individual was just an impression. When you're walking through the grass and you see a a round shape in front of you, you're startled. It's a snake. You jump back and then notice, oh, it's not a snake, it's just a coil of rope. We feel at ease. What happened to the snake when the rope was recognized? Nothing. There never was one. But similarly with the, the quality of self let go, when we, when we have insight into the truth, when we see that you know, the body is not self, personality is not self, the ego will be threatened. It'll splutter and rant and come up with all kinds of feasible identities and excuses to try and blot that insight out, to disempower it. So we listen to that. This is the voice of Mara. (coughs) One of the Upanishads begins with a statement that originally there was simply the, the mind of the absolute in the infinite void. And in the mind of the Absolute there arose the thought, I am. On the arising of the thought, I am, there came fear. With the arising of fear, there came desire. When we section off one chunk of the the natural order, call it me, then there is self and then there is other. There's this and there's that. And this inside here can be threatened by what's out there. So there's fear. And desire arises to protect us. To fill in that vulnerability. This happens in our mind over and over again. As soon as we let go, The self-creating compulsion wants to grab something else, identify with something else, because that's what it's used to. The response of the Buddha is always, I know you, Mara. Sitting under the Bodhi tree, Mara trying to persuade the Buddha, go back, take over the kingdom. You should fulfill your responsibilities. Yeah, your dad's getting old. A brother of yours is no good. Everything will fall apart if you don't pick up the reins. Go on. You know, you really should. Be responsible. You know, your wife and kid. The Buddha says, I know you, Mara. We don't have to destroy Mara, we don't have to hate him, just to know what those voices are that crave for defined being, me being something. Because even to cling to our painful states of mind, painful memories, unrequited loves gives us a sense of being. Often, the more unrequitable, the better. Isn't it a disaster when we get what we want? And then we realize, after all that longing, it hasn't completed the picture after all. So a nice unrequitable fantasy how the past might have been, the self-sense can get immense mileage out of that. Gurdjieff used to say, you can take away anything from people except for their suffering. They'll hang on to that until death. Even our most precious traumas, our most beloved hatreds, that walking through a curtain of fear, to let that go, pass through that. Having the courage to walk through that curtain. And on the other side, the heart realizes its own freedom.